0: So I said one thing last week that, as it was coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, that doesn't feel quite right, and then it kind of bugged me all week. So I just want to do a little errata sheet. You know what an errata sheet is? This is when the newspaper publishes something, they have to fix it. So I said, um, after chapter 8, verse 31, where, um, which is, in my view, kind of the climax of the book, that Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, and then there was the great rebuke, the great confession, the great rebuke. Um, I said, it's all downhill from here. And I think we used that, f- and that bothered me that I said that. So we use that phrase to mean like nothing good is going to happen from this point on. That's not the way that I intended it. <laughs> the way I intended it was we have hit the, the peak of the book from a climax standpoint, and the story is going to go toward its finish now. So that's really the way that I intended it. So hopefully you took it that way, and you're probably thinking, Why are you saying all this? But I feel better, so that's good. All right, so we ended last week um, with Jesus making his way toward Jerusalem and different reactions from different people encountering him along the way. And chapter 11 starts with the Passion Week. The Passion Week starts on Sunday of the week that Jesus is crucified. And it begins with the triumphal entry. And so we see the triumphal entry um, in the first few verses of chapter 11. And after the triumphal entry in verse 11, it says, And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So it doesn't appear that he did a lot in Jerusalem at the temple on Sunday, Palm Sunday. So verse 12 then begins Monday of the Passion Week. Jesus again heads to Jerusalem from Bethany where he'd been staying. On his way we see the account of him cursing the fig tree, which symbolizes the curse that will be on the religious leaders who are look like they have a lot of spirituality going on because of all the leaves of their tree, but there's no fruit. They look spiritual, but there's no fruit. And then, we come down to verse 15. We're going to take a little bit different approach this week where we're just going to jump right into questions, and I'm going to save some time at the end for a little bit of a teaching segment. So that's, that's where I'm headed today. So we'll try to move things along um, as we go through these six chapters. So I'm not going to give you much warm-up period here. You're going to have to get right in and discuss things, all right? So the first question, first discussion question in, in verses 15 through 19 Jesus enters the t- temple and drives out the local businessmen. How did he refer to the temple? First question here. Jeff. Den of the, how did he refer to the temple? Yeah. Oh, I guess he did refer to it as a den of robbers, but how does he refer? House, house of prayer. What else? House of prayer for all nations. Okay. House of prayer for all nations. He referred to it as his house. You have made my house a den of robbers. So all those were good answers. I didn't think about all of those when I wrote the question. So he, said, he referred to it as his house. Why did he cleanse the temple? Based on what Jesus said in verse 17, why did Jesus cleanse the temple? Brenda. And? And they had made it a den of thieves. So, how did they make it a den of thieves? They so were contracting business there instead of worship. So the okay, good. They were contracting business there instead of worshiping. I'm sorry. Yep. They were selling things. Yes, yes. yeah. Yes. So they were there to make money. They weren't there to worship God. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else? Those are good answers. So follow-up question that wasn't in the discussion questions. Was this an emotional heat-of-the-moment reaction by Jesus? It's a yes or no question, and then I'm going to ask why you answered it that way, so be prepared. <laughs> Okay, Shane, you're shaking your head. No, you got a guy jumping there. He knew what it was before he went yep. there. Yep. Yep. So I don't think he walked in here oh my goodness, what are they doing? He knew it. There was no shock and disbelief. Yeah, me. A lot of commotion. A lot of things going on besides teaching. Yeah? Anything else? I think it's significant that in verse 11, it says that Jesus went in and he looked around the day before. What did he see? He probably saw the same thing that he saw on Monday. And so I'm thinking that as Jesus observes this on Sunday, he looks around and says, this is wrong. And he doesn't do anything. And the next day he comes back. And this act is premeditated on his part. He has decided what he's going to do. He knows in advance, and it's all deliberate. It's not reactionary. He just comes in and he does it. Now, there's another cleansing of the temple event that occurs, and we're going to see that in a couple months in the book of John. It happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And in that one, it says he sat down and made a whip. <laughs> So he took the time in that instance to actually make something that he used then to cleanse a temple. So this wasn't the first time that he did it. Now, the statement that he made in verse 17 is part of his teaching of the people. It says, verse 17, And he was teaching them, saying to them, it is, is it not written, ask a question, rhetorical, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So what was he teaching? He was teaching that the purpose of the temple was a place of worship, not a place of business. And the failure of the religious leaders is that they had made it into a place of business, a place where they could make money too, rather than a place where they would worship God. So what are the reactions here of the different groups of people? Look in verse 18. The chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. What is the reaction for they feared him. Wow! Here is this guy who looks pretty harmless. There's no weapons involved. He is just speaking with such authority that they are fearing him because of the reaction of the crowd. And what is the crowd's reaction in that verse? Keep reading. Because all the crowd was astonished. They are astounded, amazed at his teaching. This goes back to what we've seen throughout the book. When Jesus did miracles, when he taught, people were astonished. And the astonishment was not only because of what he was doing and what he was saying, but with the authority that he did it. We move to verse 20, and this is Tuesday of the Passion Week. And again, Jesus goes to the temple, and the religious leaders are waiting for him at this point. I would think so. So the second question. The next day, Jesus is walking in the temple and the religious leaders approach him. What is the issue that the religious leaders are most concerned about in verse 28? Who gave you the authority to do this? Who do you think you are? What is Jesus' response? I am the authority? No, he didn't say that. He could have. Julia. So he didn't actually answer the question. He answered the question with a question. Isn't that interesting? He says, listen, you answer this question, I'll answer your question. And so he asked the question about, about John the Baptist. Now, okay, so let's unpack this just a little bit. What does it seem like the religious leaders are assuming when they ask this question about Jesus' authority? What are they assuming? Yeah, Mike. He that he is he's going to blaspheme. And so if, if you're going there, what does his answer have to be in order to get there, to, to, in order to get to the blasphemy? I, you're on the right track. What is? So they're thinking, what questions can we ask him that will make him blaspheme? We'll ask him about authority, and that is, touch? Right, so if Jesus says, my authority is from God, then they're going to say, listen, you know this is, this is outrageous, he's blaspheming. And so, if he doesn't say that, what else would he say? Titus? Authority from man? Okay, so what man are we talking about here? There's no good answer to that, right? What about, it's on my own authority. Oh, who do you think you are? So they think they have him here with this, this question. They think that there's no good answer. And I think that they are equating authority with position. So who, who do you think you are? You don't, you're, you're just like this carpenter guy from Nazareth, from Galilee. You're not a religious leader. You're not a Pharisee. You're not a teacher. It feels like they're baiting him. But what position of authority did Jesus actually have? The position of authority, the Messiah, the Son of God. And they miss all of that. And they, it just, you know, I'm going back to the end of chapter 10 and the blind Bartimaeus story. Who recognized Jesus' authority back then? Well, blind Bartimaeus says, Son of David. He recognized him as the authority, the Messiah that was coming. All right, so chapter 12. So again, after confronting the religious leaders, Jesus turns to teaching, and this time the teaching is directed straight at the religious leaders. He says he spoke to them. And while he teaches in a parable in chapter 12, the veil is very thin. In verse 12, the religious leaders perceive that he, quote, told the parable against them, and indeed he had. But it doesn't make a difference in what they proceed to do They act out this parable in the coming chapters. All right, so chapter 12, first question. The religious leaders desperately want to arrest Jesus, but they feared what the people would say if they did. We say that in verse 12. So they decide to ask him what they view as controversial questions in order to trap him. So what are the controversial topics about which the religious leaders ask Jesus in each of the following sections of chapter 12? So we're dealing with the topics here now. So 13 to 17, just kind of scan that. What is the topic here? Right, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? So why is that controversial? Taxes are always controversial. because Because Caesar's not God, but he claims to be, right? What else? Good. Yeah, so there there was a lot of so I don't know if you could hear it. So what John said is that the, the Jews were a conquered people and no one no one that's conquered wants to pay taxes to the people who conquered them. So there's a resentment factor here. And so if he if Jesus says yes, you should pay the taxes, then the people are gonna say, What? That's an outrage. We thought you were here to throw off the Roman authorities. And if he says no, you should not pay his taxes, then then what happens? Then he gets in trouble with the Romans, and the the Pharisees trot right down to the Roman authority, and they say, hey, there's this guy out there saying, don't pay taxes, you need to go talk to him. Throw him in jail. Maybe crucify him. Yeah. So, again, they they look at this as a no-win situation. All right. Verses 18 through 27. Julia. I'm sorry. The resurrection. Okay. And this is a um, a, a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They only looked at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as being their authority, and they did not believe in angels. And so they come up with this elaborate question, this hypothetical, where there's these seven guys and they all end up, you know, marrying you know, seven brothers, and they all end up dying and the, the wife survives and you know, and they, they ask their gotcha question, which is, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And what's Jesus' response? I'm sorry, Lynn, I can't hear you. There's no marriage in heaven, okay? Anything else? Yeah. Right, so we're going to be like the angels in he- heaven, so not marrying or giving in marriage. Yeah, Temi. Who has authority over the dead? Ty. (laughs) He quotes the Pentateuch. He goes to the story in in Exodus about the burning bush, and he says, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. So what verse was that? Where he says, you don't know what you're talking about. I love that. 24. 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong? In, the, in verse twenty seven at the end, you are quite wrong. He tells them, You don't know what you're talking about. And he uses the passage from Exodus where Jesus or where God reveals himself as the God of the living with people that Moses knew were already dead. He uses this the the reference to angels to kind of like give them another little poke. This is a masterful answer. Verses 28 to 34. What's our our topic there? Brenda. What's the greatest commandment? Now this whole whole story, this account, has a different tone than the other two. It it appears that this scribe, um, it says in verse 28, this scribe came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him this question. So he doesn't appear to have this like entrapment kind of mentality. He's like, wow, this, this guy really seems to have his stuff together. And so he asks them this greatest commandment question. So this question is one that theological scholars of the day debated of the 617 commandments in the Old Testament, which is the most important one. And what does Jesus say? What's his answer? Love God with all your heart. See, it actually goes back to the Pentateuch, quotes from, from Deuteronomy. Love God with all your heart. And the second is likened to this, love your neighbor as yourself. And what does this, how does the scribe react to this? You're right. He said, you've answered well. This is, you're, you're right. And, and Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God in verse 34. This is a man who the Holy Spirit is drawing and, and Jesus says you're close you're close to understanding the truth Mark concludes chapter 12 by summarizing three teaching by summarizing three teaching segments that Jesus did. Jesus talks about the identity of the Messiah as the son of David he talks about the danger of the scribes who love themselves and not their neighbors which dovetails right into that question and then he talks about, And this seems like almost out of place. The value of generosity as he observes the widow give her offering. And he shows God's view of offering. That generosity is an act of love and an act of faith. As they leave the temple area in chapter 13 at the beginning, the disciples call Jesus' attention to this magnificent structure. Struck me as kind of odd. Why are they doing that now at this point? But they do. And Jesus famously responds that there won't be one stone left on another. And then he, this prediction of the destruction of the temple um, raises concerns and interests by four of the disciples, Peter, James, Andrew, and John. And they ask him for more information. And then we get one of these rare, long teaching passages in Mark, which is a shortened version of the Olivet Discourse that we saw in Matthew. <laughs> So, first question from chapter 13. In teaching his disciples about his second coming, what familiar title does Jesus use to refer to himself in verse 26? Son of man. That's right. So where does he say he will be seen when he comes back? Yes, spell In the clouds, that's right. So here we have Jesus drawing on Daniel chapter 7. Tyler presented on that um, in the Matthew teaching, so I'm not going to go into that in detail. And then if we fast forward to Revelation 19, we see the predicted fulfillment of this, and Jesus is coming back in the clouds in the second coming. Now put a bookmark on this statement, because we're going to see something very similar in another couple chapters. Second question, what command did Jesus repeat to the disciples in verses 33, 35, 37, and why? So Bella and then Julia. Keep watch. Okay, good. And stay awake. Keep watch and stay awake. Anything else? Watch and pray, and the reason is to be prepared. That's why he gives this command. So what is he saying by... He's talking to people that are actually physically awake at the moment. (laughs) So what is he saying? Is he saying never go to sleep? No, no. no. How do we need to understand this? It's the the preparedness. So we see that there is a vigilance that Jesus expects of believers as they live their lives for him. Being good stewards of the mission of the gospel includes um, spiritual vigilance. I wish we could spend more time on chapter 13. Chapter 14. In verses 3 through 8, what act of worship of Jesus do we witness? The anointing of Jesus. Give me a little more. With what? By whom? Okay, costly ointment by Mary. How do you know it's Mary? Huh? You have to wait two months to find out that it's Mary in the book of John, all right? But, okay, it's Mary. We know this. So this is an instance where this passage is not um, sequential. So, so Mark puts it here. John tells us that it actually happens on, like, Saturday before the Passion Week. So there's nothing in this passage that says this happened at this moment. It's a little confusing because in verse 1 it says it was now two days before the Passover, but what he's talking about is when the chief priests and the scribes are seeking to kill him. So the commentator commentator that I looked at said the reason that, that they think that Mark placed it here is that it juxtaposes against Judas, which is the next little snippet that Mark gives to us. So we see this woman who we know now to be Mary breaking a flask and pouring the perfume on Jesus' head. We see the disciples' reaction. What is the disciples' reaction? They're angry. They scold him. I heard something else. Yes. Yes. Right. And how does Jesus react in verse 6? Leave her alone. Leave her alone. He liked it. Why did he like it? Right. Right. So we know from other passages that when someone died, they would prepare the body for burial and they would perfume it so that natural decomposition odors wouldn't be necessarily present. So Jesus is saying, she's doing this in pre- preparation for my burial, and she may not have even realized that yet, but she gives this as a beautiful thing, Jesus says. So what how can we apply this to our lives? Yes, Cynthia. Don't put a price on what you're doing. Yeah. Good. Claire. We can worship God anytime. Temmie? Yes. So we what we do is for the Lord. For the Lord. Yes, hutch. whatever we're doing in Christ's name. Good. Mike. It Oh, good. Yes. Yeah. Helio. I don't know. she like to Okay. The only thing she had. Possibly. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Okay. Shame. They are judging, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, John. Hmm. I felt like there's a contrast here between the last story in chapter 12, the widow's offering, putting in a very small amount, and Jesus says, this is a great thing. And then this woman gives a very expensive gift. So how much did he say it was worth 300 denarii, a denarii is the wage for a day for a laborer, you know, somebody that works in the field. So that's like a year. That's like a year's wages for someone who's working, you know, minimum wage. That's a lot of money. She is giving something extravagant. So I'm kind of seeing here a contrast of whether it's a little or whether it's a lot. All of it done in worship is pleasing to God. Wonderful thing that we see. And we see that this is not waste. Whatever's done in worship is not wasteful. We see the Old Testament system where there's all of these animals being sacrificed and things being poured out and burned up. And, and you're thinking, man, that's in an, from an economic standpoint, that feels wasteful. But God is saying, none of that is wasteful when it's directed in worship to me. Nothing about worship is wasteful. All right. So in chapter fourteen Okay, we finished that. So we see we see him them now preparing the Passover meal and Jesus tells the disciples that one of them will betray him. He institutes the Lord's Supper, he tells of Peter's denial, they sing a hymn and they go out to the Mount of Olives. So, in verses 32 to 42, what does Jesus ask Peter, James, and John to do while he prayed? Stay and watch. This is at night. So, stay and watch involves what basic function that's difficult at night? Stay awake! Right, stay awake. So, does this sound vaguely familiar? We just t- talked about this in chapter 13. So here's like a specific application of it right now. Stay awake, watch and pray. Why? Because temptation is coming. And temptation is what Jesus was facing at that moment. And he's saying, I need you to stay awake and pray. And you need to pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Because he had already warned them about the things that they were going to be tempted about. About betraying, not betraying, about... Um, Denying him. Judas was the one that betrayed him. At that point, Judas shows up with this small army, and Jesus is arrested. He's taken put on trial, first by the religious leaders, then in the Roman court. In 1462, the religious leaders ask Jesus a question. Let's just take a look at that. They ask the question in 61. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Very direct question. Jesus does not answer with a question. This time he says, I am. He confirms. Now, drop down to 15.2, when Jesus is brought before Pilate, Pilate asks him a different question. Are you the King of the Jews? And he answers him, what? What? You have said so. So Pilate asked a different question. So I'm skipping some of the questions for time's sake. Um, Pilate asked a different question than the leaders did, the religious leaders. Why is that? Yeah. Yeah. Because they green pilot, it, I think maybe Luke says and say he claims to be the price Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I think we've got the people Because the people yell? They do that later. That's not qu- it's not quite to that. It kind of plays into that later, but that's not what's happening at the moment. John? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Right. And so what would to kind of put what the two of you said together, what gets the Pharisees' ire up? When someone claims to be the Messiah because for some reason they didn't think the Messiah was going to look like this. The Pharisees were jealous. The Pilate, then, is not a religious leader. He's a political leader, and what he's concerned about is keeping the peace and making sure there's nobody else that's going to take his job. There's no other king. Uh, Temi, did you have something else there? that's what I was going to say. Okay. To be king, if, you know, right. Right. Right, right. And so if, if, the, if Jesus is trying to be king, that's like insurrection, right? And so that's a capital offense. This is something you can't do against Rome. All right, let's move to chapter 16. Just one question there. In 16.6, what does the angel reveal to the ladies at the tomb? Julia. Jesus rose. He is not here. He is Risen. A wonderful truth, and the ladies are the first ones to hear it. Excellent. Now, so this is a little bit of the teaching segment at the end here. In I'm using the ESV to teach from, I don't know how many of you use that or different translations, but in my ESV, there's in block letters and brackets, after verse 8, there's this statement. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, 9 through 20. Why does it say that, and what does it mean? So let's talk about a little bit of terminology, first of all, that we use in looking at whether verses should be in our text or not. I, I want to just mention it at the first, what I'm about to say for the next probably 10 minutes is um, a combination of information from the ESV study Bible notes, the Bible knowledge commentary, which is a very general commentary, Um, one particular commentator uh, named Dr. Constable who writes on Mark, Um, and then reaching way back to my notes from Paul Mangum's class on bibliography from Burling's Bible Institute in 1985. (laughs) So reaching way back. So some terminology, first of all. Um, the autograph is the word, the technical word that is used to describe the original writing of scripture produced by or under the direction of an apostle or prophet through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the first work that the writer wrote down. The human writer wrote down. So it's like, it's like he signed it. It's like an autograph. A manuscript Is a handwritten copy of the autograph or of other manuscripts. So, handwritten copies. So, here we have, I have a physical Bible that is printed. I have electronic Bibles, which we have digital versions on. I probably have 10 different versions of the Bible on this. Those are not manuscripts. Manuscripts are handwritten copies of the original or other manuscripts. Inspiration is a doctrine. Those other two words are just describing the physical texts. Inspiration is a doctrine. The word is used once in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16, and it literally means breathed out. God breathed out his word. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And so inspiration is the work of the Holy Spirit that produced inerrant scripture, through human writers and we hold as our church to what we call verbal plenary inspiration verbal means every word verbal means the words plenary means every word so every word that God has given to us is what he intended for us to have it was inspired by him so the human writer is not inspired Not like an artist was so inspired to create this beautiful painting. That's not what we're talking about. It's not the writer that was inspired. It is the Word that is inspired because of who it came from. It's God's Word. That's why it's powerful, because it came from God. The human writer was just capturing, sometimes in his own language and with his own experience, sometimes by dictation from God, but usually using what God moved him to do. That's inspiration. Preservation is how we get from point A to point B. So we got to go from God originally giving this book to Mark to write down to us reading it here today. How do we get there? Well, that preservation is a long process by which God protected his word over centuries so that we could have it today in our own language. It was preserved and transmitted generationally. Translation means going from the original language in which it was written in into the language that we have today that we know and can use. So from most of the, most of the New Testament's written, written in ancient Greek, that gets translated into English. We wouldn't want to go from ancient Greek to Latin to um, German to English. Why? because of the old phrase, things get lost in translation, right? So we try to go from Greek right to English. So how do, you, how do you get the Greek text put together? And so the ESV Editor's Note relates to manuscripts, number two on there. Some old manuscripts do not contain these verses. Now, in order to compile the Greek text from which a translator works, there's 5,000 or more manuscripts. They could be complete New Testaments. There's only 50 of those. They could be one book. They could be a page. They could be a fragment. So there's 5,000 of these, roughly, that these scholars use to put together what they view as the Greek New Testament. And so they're comparing one against the other to make sure that they're accurate. Most of these are from the 9th century toward 14th century, 15th century, when the printing press was invented. But some are as early as the 2nd to 4th century, so really early, really soon after they were written. The problem is the hand-copying process sometimes introduces mistakes and sometimes introduces what we call a variation. And so if someone in the second century wrote something down and wrote the wrong word, maybe they couldn't read what the other guy wrote, now you have something that other people are going to copy, and that mistake gets transmitted through variations. So, but hearing all of that, what's really amazing is that these scholars that put together this Greek text have determined that 99.5% of the text is identical. It's the same. We have a very high level of confidence that that Greek text from which our English translation is made is correct. That it's been accurately preserved. Which makes sense, right? Because if God wanted us to have his word today, he would make sure that we got an accurate version of it but verses 9 through 20 fall in that one half of 1%. And so what do we do with that? Well, there's like a whole system of technical stuff that goes with this, and I'm going to try and simplify it, like grossly oversimplify it. It's kind of two schools of thought. One is the older the text, the more valuable it is because it's closer to the original in this game of telephone, you know, where we pass one thing to another. Others say, well, more is better. So if we have more that say this than say that, we're gonna go with the more. Now, if you had more and older, that'd be easy. But here is where they diverge. So in this instance, we see the ESV editors saying, some of the earliest manuscripts, which happen to be some of the best ones from the old category, don't have this. So they felt like it needed to be noted. Later ones, but more of them, do include it. So we kind of have this weighing process. In addition to that, they look back from an external standpoint at what early believers had to say. And this is a mixed bag too. Some of them don't reference it at all. Some of them reference it and say, yes, it was included. So that's like, okay, how do you weigh that? Then scholars look at internal factors like the style of writing. As I look at this, I, I look at these verses and I think the style, kind of, to me. I mean, I'm not a scholar, but to me, it kind of matches what Mark has been doing. If you look at verses 12 and 13, it's talking about the the, the appearance uh, by Jesus on the road to Emmaus to the two disciples. Like we have like almost a whole chapter in Luke about that. But what's Mark's style? He just gives the sense of, you know, he's just given a little snippet. So that to me is similar. The fact that if you took this out, so I'm going to balance that off with another view, if you took 9 through 20 out, there's kind of an abrupt ending. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they were nothing, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Talk, talking about these disciples, the, the, the ladies. Verse 8. That's kind of a weird ending but that's not really unusual for Mark. He does things abruptly, he cuts things off. So that has a balance too. How about vocabulary? So actually looking at the actual words that he used, and this is kind of interesting, that one-third of the significant words, not the and of the, you know, that kind of stuff, one-third of the words are unique. So Mark didn't use one-third of these words anywhere else in his text. And then content. Is the content consistent with the rest of the book? Are there doctrinal elements that raise questions? In this case, we see these endings are. this ending is consistent with the other endings. And importantly, there's no doctrinal issues that are raised in this section, and they don't form the theological foundation for any doctrine in particular. So, historically, the early church appears to have accepted these verses as part of Mark's gospel, and thus it became part of the inspired canon of Scripture. As such, and given the inconclusiveness of all of this evidence that I've talked about in very brief form, I think the ESV editor's approach is a good one. And that here I am commenting on on what scholars are doing. Um, That is to highlight for us that there is an issue to be upfront about it, not to ignore it, not to sweep it under the rug, but to leave it in so that we can make that judgment for ourselves. So the conclusion is that the transparency evidenced by the ESV editors calling our attention to this variation of the manuscripts should build our confidence in the reliability and completeness of our 21st century Bibles. We have God's Word. God has inspired it and he has preserved it for us and we can be confident in reading it that this is what God has for us. And I'm sorry we didn't have time to get to our wrap-up question. I really would have loved to hear what you had to say about how Mark advances the grand theme of redemption. But we are beyond time, and I appreciate your patience. So let's close in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your word, for scripture. We're grateful for many people over many centuries who have made sure to be very careful with handling your word and so that we could have an accurate uh, version of it in our hands today. It's so precious to us. We thank you for it. We ask your blessing now as we worship you all together. In Christ's name, amen.